So great to see you all. Great to have you here. And uh, if we have not met, my name is Drew. Would love to meet you after the gathering and just really excited to have you here as we kind of move along. And if you haven't been a part of things or don't kind of know what's going on, we are right now in a teaching series. So basically every winter, uh, and this started kind of unintentionally and then turned into more of an intentional posture. We walk through either like a letter or book of the Bible. And if you've been around the Story Praxis, which was like a city view back in the day, basically almost every winter we've gone through uh, something, which is great. Last year, this time we went through the Song of Songs, which was awesome and spicy. Can I get an amen? It was interesting uh, as we uh, walked through that. And now this year, obviously, just going through Galatians as part of something that I really think is shaping and forming us. And so actually, if you have a Bible and you want to open it up or fire it on, we're just going to get right into it. We're gonna, in Galatians chapter 2, we're going to start in verse 11. Lexi's going to read in just a second. Uh, it's fascinating, though. It's funny. Actually, we had our community uh, last night. We were uh, spending some time together with our Praxis community. And by, by the way, uh, thanks to those that served as well, Arcade, it was awesome. Um, and we just got talking about, you know, one of the things that stood out to a lot of people when David, con David Harvey got this going for us, this series going, is how this is a letter, right? Um, it's not rocket science, it's somebody's mail, kind of that we're reading here. And I know we've taken now a slowed down posture to say we're going to kind of go verse by verse and slowly, but uh, a couple people were talking around the table, just the importance of also reading this uh, kind of in one swoop, because that's what would happen. They would have got a letter. This wasn't, at the time, they didn't probably, even at the time, they didn't know it was scripture to them. They didn't know a couple thousand years later it would be in the canon of scripture that people would read. This was kind of just a letter from Paul who helped us get started. And I think it is important to read it as, a, as, like, uh, as one sitting. It takes about 20 minutes, because as, as David showed us, it helps connect some of the dots. So I thought that was really great, just talking to some people as they kind of um, are experiencing this type of learning and how that's important. We are now going to drill down on chapter 2, verse 11. Read it. We're gonna, it's a bit of reading all the way to the end of the chapter. Amazing. This is the reading of God's word. Thank you. Great job. Um, if you catch it, there's a bit of a church fight going on. Anybody ready for a church fight? Some of you are like, my childhood or the way I grew up, the trauma maybe is coming back. And um, it's interesting here what's happening uh, and what's unfolding in this church in Galatia, what Paul is doing, because it actually, it has to do with two prominent figures in the church community, uh, and they're disagreeing. And what we catch here actually, and I know it's, that's read over us and we hear it and there's things that are common, especially if we've been around the church, there are things within that passage that very much stand out, this cruciform type of life that we're called into as Jesus followers. But really the first four verses that Lexi read here, verses 11 through 14, really help us understand the argument that's kind of being at hand in the whole letter. And we've touched on this a little bit, but really we catch here, Paul, really he's He's not happy. He is peed off because there are some rival teachers in Galatia in the area that have spread word about this incident. We catch it. You kind of catch it here. This incident between Peter and one of the things that Paul, you can tell, is not happy about, and scholars would say this, is that a lot of these rival teachers who are really focusing on Judaism more than they were Messiah Jesus and what he's doing and bringing everybody together, they, in a sense, were siding with Peter as the one who was kind of continuing on the Jewish stuff 
and looking oftentimes at Paul as kind of the people-pleasing kind of villain type. There's division because the, the teachers uh, within Judaism outside of the Galatian church were really trying, again, to hold these new Christians to enter into what Paul would call the works of the law. We've talked a lot about this over the last couple of weeks. It's kind of weird when we talk about things like circumcision, but it's just part of the outward sign for the Jewish community that this was kind of what literally <laughs> marked them on the outside as God's people. And now we're also going to see that like there's this layer towards Jewish kosher eating and, and the things that are kind of being placed on the church. So basically what happens, you can hear it here, Paul accuses Peter of going back. That we're going to see that, and you can hear it in the language in the text, Peter has to reconcile as a Jewish dude whether or not he is going to sit at the table, which by the way, and this is a side note we'll get here in a minute, is the primary place in which the church manifested. Can I get an amen? I love this environment. But this is, again, like the whole practice community thing is not like, hey, we're kind of bored, so let's like try and do stuff. It's very much at the heart of table fellowship was the way in which the church moved and worked. And now Peter is falling back into this trap of not eating with Gentile people. And so Paul, as he often is in his writing and his letters, is not happy. And some people forget that we actually kind of get like a little bit of a church fight between two of the most prominent apostles within the church, obviously coming from different streams. Paul is very clear, brothers and sisters, he, to, to the people reading in the first century and to us, listen, I didn't come from Jerusalem. This gospel I got was from God. And then you have Peter who actually walked in the footsteps of Jesus and they're working this out. Now, I look at this, there's hope for us, right? I mean, this is, practice is a very healthy community and we're blessed. But just even in our moment, I think there's hope for us that even in division, God can still move, even maybe, and I think we could call it this on Peter's part, even in certain ideologies. Because remember, Peter is, again, wrestling with the Jewish foundations of his life. He grew up in this stuff. This Peter, even though he went back to the family trade as a fisherman, he would have known the Torah very well. He would have, even as a fisherman, understood Genesis to Malachi. He would have had it in his bones. And so as the Jesus movement is coming and as the family of God is emerging, and it's not just Jewish people, but it's Jewish and Gentile people, P Peter's working through this. And so in Antioch, Acts chapter 11, we talked about this last week, Peter was actually eating with Gentiles and he's falling back. Got to remember, there's got to be a little bit of empathy here that in the Jewish mindset, for years, for millennia, Jew the Jewish community actually banned consorting with Gentile people because they were known as idolaters. They were known, like, again, this is where it's easy kind of a couple thousand years later to be hard on Peter and go, what is this guy doing? Like, why isn't he inviting everybody? I mean, aren't we supposed to be this inclusive people calling every tribe and nation and tongue and everybody to the table? And absolutely, yes, that's true. But I think there's got to be a little empathy because in the line, there's just this division. And this mindset ultimately assumed that the Torah was still in force, that following the iota of the law and not letting up on this or relaxing on it would be disloyal to kind of the Jewish way of life. And so you're like, man, that's kind of heady. Well, it's just the reality when we pick up Galatians, 
there is stuff going on. There's layers to it. I love the parts, and I said this last week, I love the parts that talk about the fruit of the Spirit and the flannel board kind of Sunday school stuff. I love that. And even the end of what Lexi wrote, like, I've been crucified with Christ. I love that verse, but there's context to it. So Peter falls back, and he got to a point where he actually pulls away from the Gentiles and eating with them at table fellowship. And we hear in large part because there were, and it's in your text there, there were certain persons from James who came to Antioch. So actually the picture we get here, and it's probably not that these, these teachers or rival teachers or whatever necessarily were sent by James from Jerusalem because James was kind of the head guy in the Jerusalem church, but that these people came from Jerusalem using James' name to again Judaize. And that's just simply to mean to put on the Gentile Christians that if you want to be a part of this church and this community, you've got to enter into the Jewish stuff. You've got to enter into circumcision and kosher eating and some of the things. And there was and Paul deals with this in Corinth as well. Kind of this division around maybe the table should be segregated. So Peter moves to a posture of not eating with this community. Now, guys, this, this is really messed up because, and it's good, obviously, that Paul in this context actually deals with this. Because think about it. The table, uh, the, the Jesus community coming around the table should be the most unifying place. And when you mess with that, you're messing with, Paul is convinced on this, you are messing with the entire gospel story and narrative. The table is this unifying place for the new family of God, Jew and Gentile in this context. And it was where the gospel was put on display. We often talk, and I get it, there's, a, there's an element of event, what we would call evangelism in our DNA as people who follow God. We want the world to know. But what's really fascinating is that a lot of the scriptures very much just deal with how the church community is growing and moving together. And that the gospel is not just something for the people out there, the world out there, but it's actually put on display when we come in together, when we turn in towards each other, when we eat meals together, when we do this. And Paul is upset because this ultimately is being messed with. It's being tampered with. I love how N.T. Wright says that the gospel was, in quotes, declaring that something had happened as a result of which the world was now a different place, right? This is what the gospel did. As it was coming to bear on these people in Galatia, it was creating a whole new world. Come on, Kevin, a whole new world, right? Um, that's for later. You know, new creation had arrived. This was in Paul's, like, mindset. Anyone could become, come and be a part of this from any background or culture. And those who did came together and they were constituted as a new family, a new kind of family. The, and Paul is convinced, and he's obviously pushing against Peter, the ultimate children of Abraham, that this family would become the Messiah's people. This is what God was doing in the world. And so what Paul sees Peter, what he sees Peter doing is not acting, this is in the NIV, this is the term, not acting in line with the truth of the gospel. So it's not just about words, it's about full embodiment. Basically, it's funny, man, this is hilarious. Like, again, you miss this if you kind of just read the letter quick. Basically, Paul sees Peter's actions as a sham. 
And this is the Bible. This is why I love like how we totally dispel here the golden tablets view of the scripture. Because you just have two dudes fighting and one dude reading about it and it's in our Bible. Is that not awesome? I just love that. I love how it just kind of dispels some of the over-spirituality of, of sometimes what we do with the text. So this is what Paul says. He says this. In all of this, he continues to drive home very much the same point we've been trying to make the last couple weeks. He says this. We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. And again, we distinguished in week one of this kind of teaching and get, kind of getting our minds around it. When we say works of the law, we're not talking about good deeds. Somehow in the Protestant movement, we've kind of pinned good works against faith. And that is not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about, again, these Jewish identity markers. Paul says, we're not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put on faith in Christ Jesus that we may be, what? Justified by faith in Christ and, then, and again, and not by works of the law. Now, I know we know this. If you've been around the church for a while, it kind of can be simple for us. But this message in the moment for Peter and kind of the polluted ideas that people had to go through circumcision and kosher eating and Sabbath to become a Jesus follower is completely being dispelled. The ultimate question that Paul is trying to answer is this, brothers and sisters. Who are the righteous? Who are the righteous? Who are the ones that are righteous? Who are the true heirs of Abraham? And what does Paul say? Over and over, not just in Galatians, but all of his writings, they are marked by what? What are they marked by? Faith. Faith. Not what you do externally. Though, brothers and sisters, when we come into the family of God, stuff changes over time. Can I kind of get an amen? Is it, you know, like things change on the outside, absolutely. But the marker of this whole entire thing from every corner of the globe, every tribe, nation, tongue, every person, no matter where they come from, this community, the church, now millennia later, is marked by faith. The word in the New Testament over and over is the word pistis. Can you say that word pistis with me? Okay, so here's the problem. We're going to take a little, we're going to veer and just focus on one thing before we come to the tables. Because I think, I don't want to like make it sound bigger than what it is, but I actually really think this is one of the biggest things we have to wrestle through. Because here's the thing, I ask people sometimes, what is faith? And a lot of times the answers that I kind of hear back are kind of muddied, right? Somehow in the West, and it's particularly because there's a couple verses in Hebrews that talk about faith being, you know, something, you know, kind of acting as you can't see. And there's part truths in that. But for most of us in the Western world, faith is simply kind of this, it's kind of walking blind and walking aimlessly. You know, I can't see, but I, I kind of just walk into the, the night. And even if you kind of like hit the one minute Instagram re wheels with like influencers and teachers, a lot of times they're calling people to have more faith. But what I've noticed is if we don't understand what faith is in the scriptures, it kind of leaves us empty. Anybody ever feel like sometimes you hear people like just calling for more and wanting, you need to have more faith to kind of see this happen or you need to do this and you need to kind of more faith, more faith, more faith, more faith. And without kind of a concrete understanding of what faith is under us, it just leaves us really in the moment that we're in. Um, 
a moment of deconstruction, which if you've been around here, we've talked a lot about deconstruction. And I, part of our doubting is actually part of the way of Jesus. And um, we've talked a lot about that. But it's left us, I think, in the wake of a lot of people just like tired out. Are you with me? There's just a lot of people that are tired because it's, it's a lot of messaging that would say just more. You need more, you need more. And a lot of times we don't even know what faith actually means in the scriptures. So we're going to take a little detour, take 10 minutes before we come to the tables. What is faith? Faith or belief, sometimes we read in our English Bible, is the word, like I said, pistis in Greek. It's used over 550 times. And oftentimes it's used like with its root words, kind of in noun and verb forms. The Latin translation is the word fide, faith. Some of you know from the Protestant Reformation, sola fide, or what Paul even says here, justification by faith alone. But even there, what is, what is faith? We use this, this rules, have more faith, kind of walk out into the deep. You know, I think we should have oceans playing in the back, anybody? You call me out on the water, which is great, love the song, but like, what is this, what does this even mean? The big thing to get our minds around this idea of faith is instead of asking what faith means in English, what we have to do is ask what pistis meant in the language of its day, right? So when Paul is using this word pistis over and over to describe faith, the question has to be, what does he mean in his moment so that we can pick it up for ours? And so one of the things we have to do is sometimes we have to do the hard work on a Sunday morning in February of looking at this word in the context of the ancient Jewish world and the ancient Greco-Roman world. Oh, I know you're geeked up for this, right? You're just so excited. You got your coffee, you're here, you're like, I came for this. Yes, you did, right? The, the, one of the big realities with the word pistis, and I think this is like a super just an important concept for us. A guy named Matthew Bates has done a great job in his recent book, um, By, Allegiance, By Allegiance Alone, I think it's called. It's a great, great little book. But this word pistis was a relational word that was primarily used to describe the relationship between family members. Usually it was used to talk about the relationship between husband and wives or patron and clients or in that context maybe even masters and slaves within that context of the ancient world. And its depth, at its depth, it carried the meaning of devotion or loyalty. When you heard this word pistis or you saw it in its root form, it always meant a form or type of loyalty. Here's how, and I think Bates has done a great job with this. Here is how I think the best way to kind of translate faith in English. The word faith, we should be translating and thinking every time we hear faith. You see the one minute Instagram clip where somebody's calling you for more or whatever. We should be thinking through the lens of the first century, which was this idea of allegiance. Allegiance. This is, when you read faith or belief, pistis, in its original meaning, meant allegiance or loyalty or Another layer could be like trust, like trusting in authority or in a king. And I think this is actually really groundbreaking because it takes all kind of the ethereal stuff, all of the spooky stuff out of faith and kind of trying to walk out into the dark. And you realize like what Paul is talking about is very, very concrete. Can I get a head nod behind the mask? Are you with me? This is really good news. Like, 
and don't, don't hear me wrong. I think there's moments and seasons of our life where we're called out onto the waters, all that. Um, cue it up, right? It's good. But I think what could be really helpful for a lot of people walking through a lot of church stuff and like tiredness when it comes to church community and what's asked of them is to realize this ultimately means allegiance. You want a couple historical examples? Can I give you a couple historical examples? This is just fun for me. I know it's just pain for you. But if you look at the word pistis, not even in the, right? So sometimes we think the Greco-Roman language, the Greek language was simply for the Bible. But we obviously know it's not. If people write things today, if the Bible was written today, it would probably be written, you know, in our context in English. And there's other external things that use the same language to describe things, right? Great. There's a couple really good examples just to show you what pistis is like. So, um, from the first century BC, this is from um, the First Maccabees. So there's external texts outside of the Bibles from First Maccabees. It says this: King Demetrius to the nations of nation of the Jews, greetings. Since you have kept your agreement with us and have continued your friendship with us and have not sided with our enemies, we have heard of it and rejoiced. And listen to what First Maccabees says. It, King says, now continue still to keep faith, to keep pistis with us, and we will repay you with good for, uh, for what you do for us. Keep the pistis, keep the faith. This is outside of the Bible text. And what is it talking about? You call me out on the water. No, it doesn't, it's not talking about blind walking into nowhere. It's talking about allegiance or loyalty to the king. Pistis, this is what it meant in its original term. Josephus, my boy Josephus, first century historian, helps us. He's obviously, this is an outside the Bible kind of text. This is what he says. Josephus caught a traitor trying to betray him and offered him, listen, in quotes, to forgive him what he had done already if he would repent of it and be pistis to me hereafter. Faith, to be faithful to me. Again, is faithfulness here this idea of like kind of walking in the blind? No, it's actually talking about walking in loyalty or allegiance. Now, we could go all day, and I know you just love that, but you got to eat lunch at some point, and so do I. It's my mom's birthday today, so I actually got to go somewhere too after this, which is great. But I just think, does that not help us? Like, it's not just in the Bible. Anytime this word pistis is used, it's very, very concrete stuff. So I've just been saying, when we pick up and Paul talks about being justified by faith, there's a type of allegiance or a loyalty to it. And I really think every time we read in the New Testament, we read faith, we should insert the word allegiance or loyalty. And this is a paradigm shift for the church right now, right? Because it's not just about knowing stuff. It's about allegiance, this is what Paul meant, and a lot of times we're so shaped by the Reformation. We think of faith, having faith, or belief especially, it's kind of the same words, as a mental ascent in our head, right? So if I just believe the right things and hit the right check boxes, then I have belief or faith. And that's not, that's part of it. There's nothing less than right belief in faith, but that right belief embodies our entire lives where it's a full allegiance to the king. And so I'm a nice guy, right? Pretty nice. But what ha this has led to, especially in a Western church context, and even more since the pandemic, is we just have, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, it sounds really judgy, but we have a lot of people in North American churches who are not disciples, right? 
because faith is fully embodied type of living where it's our entire allegiance and lives to the king. And so when Paul talks about being justified by faith, this is what he means. You with me? You're hanging in there. Bates, Matthew Bates talks about these kind of dimensions of loyalty that you see. It's mental affirmation that the gospel is true. So there's part of our minds and belief that is used in that. It's professed allegiance to Jesus as the cosmic Lord, which Paul is all about when he talks about the present powers of this present age and the cosmic reality of what Jesus the King is doing. But then he talks about this third layer. It's enacted loyalty through obedience to Jesus as King. Hey, Levi, don't go anywhere. Don't go. Come here, buddy. Come here for a sec. Yeah, I put you on the spot. I love, um, I love, and then we'll kind of close with this. Sorry, man, did I call you out in church? Are you, don't be embarrassed. You get, you get to participate in a second, which is good. I love the picture. So in the first century, the term grace or the idea of grace and gift giving was always reciprocal. So in the first century, when you would receive a gift, there was kind of like, isn't that the worst in our day? Like that you receive a gift and there's kind of this expectation to kind of re- reciprocate that gift. Um, any ever, anybody ever feel the pressure of that sometimes? Somebody gives you like a lavish gift or something at Christmas and you have nothing for them and you feel really bad like you've got to kind of return the gift. Yeah, you're always giving gifts and I'm just like empty-handed. Though I did good at Christmas, I did good at Christmas. Heather can tell you later. I actually did good for once on Christmas. But in the ancient world, this idea of grace... Seneca called grace, he kind of gave this picture of grace as like playing catch. Now this is our lives. Yeah, throw it back. It's church, I know, but we can have fun in church. People can laugh and we can throw a football around. Right? This is the image that he gives when it comes to grace. A reciprocation. I pass. Where are you going? Oh, you gotta go to the washroom? Okay. Be safe. Be safe. Throw it back. Judah's Bengals lost on Sunday, so he's really sad. And your Rams won. Oh, don't worry about it. It's all good. Um, when we think of grace, this is actually the picture that we get. It's like a game of catch. I receive, and then I reciprocate back. And again, somehow in our moment, when we talk about these concepts of faith and grace, we talk about the free gift of grace, and absolutely, like what Jesus has done, is absolutely received in freedom, but faith or allegiance is reciprocated back, right? And if we don't get this idea, if we don't understand like what actually Paul was talking about, we get, again, we walk in the muddiness of just kind of walking blind. Are there things in your life that you do not know and have some unknowns about? Absolutely. Are there things that you're going to step into in your life that are just like, it is like stepping out in the water? Or for some of us, like, I even think of our own lives the last couple years, like, some ways feeling almost like stepping off a cliff at times. Just the the trust and the faith that that takes in in that idea. For sure, absolutely. But what Paul is talking about here is an allegiance to the king of the universe. And this is why Paul is flipping out, is because the new humanity, what's happening in the church, Peter has slipped back into his old ways. Have we seen this before? Like, can we, like, really? Like, if, it's easy to be hard on Peter, but the reality is, this is kind of the story of his life, right? The continual kind of falling, I'm not going to deny you, Jesus, and by the end of the night, three times, right? 
And yet, none of us in this room can point to Peter and go, look at that tool. I, I think what that does for us is turns it into ourselves and our own inward reflection that it's so easy to create division around the table. I can do it. You know, even, and I've talked openly, even in, in a church planting situation where you have certain ideas and certain bents and a posture, a certain way of doing things where you can just kind of think your way is the best way or being ingrained in, in certain ideas, how important it is to understand that this is fully embodied and that this type of faith that we're walking in, in, into is allegiance. That's what it is. And so with that said, if we can take this away, if we can take this concept away, it will change how we act and how we embody. My call for us, I guess, this morning would be to receive and to reciprocate. To receive. You're, we're justified by faith, allegiance, and we reciprocate this love back. The, the, the atmosphere this morning, the, the, just what was cultivated in worship is beautiful. And now we have an opportunity at the table to receive, Right? And we're going to give opportunity to reciprocate, to receive and to reciprocate. So brothers and sisters, the call when we read a text like this is come to God, come to Jesus, come to the Father through King Jesus and give your allegiance, be justified by faith. You with me?